This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. I have a show for you today. You are blessed. My friends, you are blessed because I'm going to be interviewing the great and the wonderful, the magnificent Eric Metaxas on his new book that is coming out later next month, Is Atheism Dead? And I'm telling you now, this will be the most talked about nonfiction book of the year. This book is filled with startling Revelation after startling revelation, discovery after discovery. Some of these discoveries were made decades ago, but they never told us because they were afraid if they told us we would believe in God. So I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to, what do I need to say? It's Eric Metaxas and it's his new book and all of his books are on your shelf. Well, this book needs to go on your shelf, but more importantly, it needs to go on every young person in your life shelf. Let's get on with the interview. This episode is always is being brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film, the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable. Go to thegreatcampaign.org and stand with us as we stand with the vulnerable. And as always, MyPillow. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and if you use the code Jones, or you could use the code Eric, you get deep, deep, Deep discounts on wonderful pillows, the best pillows, wonderful, the mattress topper. There's nothing more luxurious in the world. And the Giza Dream Sheets. You know you want those Giza Dream Sheets. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use the code JONES. All right, on with the interview with the great Eric Metaxas. Aloha, Eric Metaxas. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Are you Jason Jones? I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in for Jason Jones today, but I have the uh, same yeah. name as that guy. Unbelievable. Well, I'm Eric Metaxas, and I'm excited to be on the show. Jason, yeah, you are one of these people that you know I love you, and I'm just grateful that I get to be on your show. But uh, it's you just want to talk to whether I'm interviewing you or you're interviewing me. Well, I love you, and you don't know this, but I... I'm sponsored by MyPillow, too, and I give my audience the choice to use the code Jones or Metaxas, and then I give a sob Get story. Out of here. I give them a sob story on why they should use the name Jones, because I need the money, and they can't spell Metaxas, but I do. I give them the choice. Actually, Metaxas is not the code. My code is Eric. Oh, so can, no. Yeah, Are you serious? Eric. Yeah. I've never helped you at all, then. You've never gotten no. one. No, no pillow has ever been sold. You've never uh, gotten any credit because I, so, no. I literally say Metaxas. I say Jones or Metaxas. You're so funny. You're that's so funny. That's hysterical. Well, first of all, my favorite two books of the year, you wrote both of my, I, you know, your autobiography, which I did not read, I listened to, which everyone should just listen to because they're going to miss a lot if they read it because you're, you're, 
your your sarcasm and your sense of humor. I think people will miss a lot if they don't listen to it. And it makes it's very funny. And um and I owe you big time because of Fish Out of Water, I finally agreed to do my autobiography because it, it taught me I can write an autobiography that's really not even about me at all. <laughs> it's about because, because of my autobiography, you're finally gonna write your autobiography. Now I have really accomplished something. And I'm not kidding. Like that makes me up. You've got an amazing story. I know it involves atheism, which is what we're going to talk about in this phone call. So that's kind of cool. I'm I'm thrilled to hear this. Yeah, well, it's, I'm glad you think it's a major accomplishment because I've already updated your Wikipedia to put that you inspired Jason Jones to write his autobiography. <laughs> it's in there. It's at the very, very top of your Wikipedia. I thing. wish everybody who listens to your program would update my Wikipedia with anything they want because it's only the haters seem to get in there. They always put negative stuff in there. But uh, that's another story. Let's well, talk about something positive. Your new book. Yeah. Is yep, Atheism I think of it as Dead? Positive. No, it's an amazing book. And I want to just start with the title because there must have been some debate. Is it going to be Atheism is Dead? Or it, was there a debate? Or, or why was it a question? No, there was no debate. I'll tell you why. In 1966, Time Magazine came out with a famous cover article saying is god dead and i thought you know what in the time since that 1966 article came out the evidence has moved dramatically in the other direction so that the question is not is god dead the question is is atheism dead and i've come to the conclusion that most people have no idea how the information and evidence has piled up for the existence of God since about 1966 when the Time Magazine came out, you know, our lifetimes roughly, right? That evidence has been kind of batted away because people sort of bought into the narrative like, you know, science and faith are uh, enemies and science is disproving faith. Well, the fact of the matter is the evidence since 1966 has been piling up and up and up and up till it gets to a point where when I looked at it, I said, this is insane. I need to write a book about this. People almost won't believe it because we've been drinking the Kool-Aid for decades that somehow science disproves faith, they're enemies, whatever. And the, the opposite is true, but it's, the, the facts are so dramatic, I said, I've got to write a book about it. So that's why it's called as Atheism Dead. Do you think that even Christians have drank the Kool-Aid and they're afraid? Maybe kind of science did just because yes. yep, the narrative perfect. is so overwhelming? exactly you said it exactly as I have said it. Many people who say they're Christians, even devout Christians, they have sort of internalized the criticisms through the culture to the point where they're almost apologizing for their faith. Like, oh, I know it's just faith. It's not. I got to tell you, we need to flip that. The facts are so dramatic, Jason. Well, you read the book, so you're, you know, you're being nice. You're letting me talk about it. But I got to tell you, I couldn't believe it. I said, we are, we are giving the other side way too much credit. I mean, atheists basically don't have a leg to stand on. If you want to say I'm an agnostic, if you want to say there's all these things in the Bible I don't understand, well, okay, we can have a conversation. But when you say there's no God, I, that's like saying the earth is flat, nobody ever landed on the moon, they did it in a TV series in Houston. I mean, at that point, I go, listen, I know you don't understand what you're talking about. I understand why you might not understand it but now that i understand it it's hard for me to take you seriously because the evidence is just slam dunk it's it's loony it's loony and that's just from science and then you know there's there's other stuff 
Well, you know, my favorite quote is from Mark Twain, that uh, an agnostic is an atheist who's afraid to say it out loud because then God will hear him. And <laughs> when I was an atheist, it was, I, it was Sartre that really led me to the Christian religion eventually. And to see that quote from, I think it was a Greek Orthodox priest that said Sartre was the greatest theologian of the Western tradition was striking yeah. to me because it was really Sartre. And I was a, a Randian. I was an Ayn Rand objectivist at the University of Hawaii. And I'm grateful to the professor that actually required me to read Sartre because I don't think that's somewhere I would have went on my own. And, um, but he really painted a very bleak picture that, right. and I say that it was Rand and Sartre that kind of pointed me towards God because Rand had this exalted vision of a human person that Sartre said is not possible without God and made that very clear. And so I was, I wrestled with that. I wrestled between Rand and Sartre, but then I just thought, well, you know, it's science disproves it. So I, I, I like how you laid out your book to me. It wasn't even an acceptable, I can't believe in God because God has been disproven by evolution. Of course, I never, yeah. I, I was able to get through, uh, get a bachelor's degree at the university of Hawaii without taking a single math, a single math class and only one science class. And I was able to do that. Because I went to my department and said, if I took feminist studies and racism, sexism, and heterosexism, if I took those two classes, could they stand in place of science? This is true wow. and math. Wow. And wow. I was chairman of the college Republicans, and they said, most definitely you can take those classes. But, you know, I, I thought I would laugh at Christians. I would chuckle. These dummies, these dummies believe in God. Don't they know about evolution? And here I, I'm, I knew well enough that I couldn't even pass a science class, but I would stare down my nose and chuckle at Christians because they believed in God. And Well, look, it, most of it, I think in the culture in which we live, the default mode is to sneer at people of serious faith, right? Now, why is that? It's not based on logic, because if you read my book, you realize the logic is dramatically on the other side. It's just a cultural thing. And the re one of the reasons I wrote the book, and again, the title is, Is Atheism Dead? The reason I wrote it is I said, we have to change the narrative. The facts are so dramatic that it's time for a reckoning. It's time for a recalibration of where we are in the culture. Because 50 years ago, you couldn't say that the evidence from science points dramatically in the direction of a creator God. Today, you can say that. And in fact, that's even putting it mildly. It is so amazing how the evidence is piled up. But you know, Jason, the thing is that people just haven't reported on it. So you can't really blame people for not knowing because people kind of just ignored the evidence. Nobody ever really took stock and said, hey, wait a minute, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. So when I kind of saw all this, I said, I just have to put this in a book because it's, this is information most people, even people who say they're Christians, they don't know this. We need to know that science has very, very dramatically made the case for a creator. It can't make the case for Jesus. It can't make the case for the Bible. I mean, that's a that's another thing, and I get into that later in the book in biblical archaeology. But, but science makes it impossible to be an atheist. You just can't. There's just, just the evidence. I mean, I mean, I mean, there are three arguments that I use, and just to be clear to the audience of what I'm talking about. Number one is the one argument that even Christopher Hitchens said, this is the one argument that 
uh, is the strongest on the faith side. Even he admitted it, and he never admitted anything. He was very nasty in debates and stuff. But at one moment, somebody put a camera in his face, and he admitted that the fine-tuned argument is the one that gives us pause. So I wrote about that in my book, Miracles. I wrote an op-ed that was put in the Wall Street Journal called Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. That piece that I put in the Wall Street Journal talking about this in, I guess, six years ago, it went so viral that it became the most shared article in the history of the Wall Street Journal, 650,000 Facebook shares, which is more than double the previous record. Now, why? Because people are hungry for this information. They can't find it anywhere. The whole culture is secular. So when the Wall Street Journal printed this thing, people just went crazy. And I said, you know what? That means I probably should write a book about this. So that's what made me write the book. So one of the three arguments for God from science is the fine-tuned argument. I probably should give an example for that, shouldn't I? Okay. Uh, the fine-tuned argument is that if anything were different, the more science discovers, the more science realizes that, wait, wait a minute, the size of the Earth, if it was any bigger, it couldn't support life. And if it was any smaller, it couldn't support life. Now, most of us grew up watching Star Trek and science fiction. We kind of assume planets could be any size. It makes no difference. Well, in the last number of years, not many years, science has determined that that's not true, that it just so happens that if a planet is any smaller than Earth, like take Mars, what's called the magnetosphere is not strong enough, and it will allow the atmosphere to dissipate, and so just like on Mars, there's not, no atmosphere to speak of, there can be no life. We didn't learn that growing up in school. We kind of thought, oh, life is everywhere. It could be anywhere. It's got nothing to do with the size of the planet. They also discovered that if the planet were every, ever so slightly larger, the gravity would be so powerful, it would keep poisonous gases in the atmosphere instead of letting them dissipate. I mean, but that's one of dozens and dozens of examples. And science has brought us this information only in the last decades. So when we were little kids, it was easy to say that science doesn't point to God uh, or is at odds with uh, the, the biblical narrative. But today it is just the opposite. It's really something beautiful that just as science is bringing us to the point where it's almost impossible to deny the existence of God, the Western philosophical tradition brought us to a place where we realize it's, it's impossible to have any hope for a human community for human communities, for family, for transcendent moral order, for acknowledging the dignity of the other while denying God. So yes. science, in a way, is saving the Western tradition from nihilism. Well, isn't that funny, though? I mean, this is why you got to see God's hand in this. Like, why <laughs> now? Why didn't we figure this out 100 years ago, 50 years ago? Why now? Well, I, I don't know why, but God seems to have known because it's very curious to me that just at this moment of, triumphal secularism and atheism, science points in the other direction. And, and I said it earlier, but the evidence is so dramatic that it amazed me. I just thought I never would have dreamt that it would be such dramatic evidence, but it goes on and on and on. The, the second argument from science, because the first third of the book is science, uh, the second scientific argument has to do with what they call abiogenesis. In other words, how did life come out of non-life. We're not talking about evolution. Evolution has to do with when you already have life, what happens to the life so that it turns from, you know, single cells into more complex things. And that's a big conversation. People have written, you know, hundreds of books on it. But forget about evolution. Let's just talk about 
the simple question, how do you get life from non-life? So many of us have bought into the evolutionary idea that we kind of think, oh, it evolved. I learned that in third grade, though, Eric. Well, yes. Lightning struck a pond. There you go. There you go. That's the answer. If anybody comes up with the answer, it's just what you said. But you're one of very few people who remembers. But some of us learned in third grade. Some of us learned in eighth grade biology. But the fact of the matter is that there was an experiment done in 1952 that said if we put electricity through this prebiotic soup, you know, something that they thought was a rough equivalent of what was on the earth four billion years ago, you get these amino acids. And next thing you know, you know, you got fish jumping and stuff. Well, that little experiment, 1952, it's in all the textbooks. You heard about it. I heard about it. People read it. It was on the test that we took, you know, to graduate. And yet, over 70 years later, almost 70 years later, next year, 70 years, we have learned nothing. In other words, the, the promise of that initial uh, experiment was that, well, next year and the year after that and the year after that, we'll learn more and more and more and more. We'll figure out what happened after the amino acids came into being. Well, in the seven decades since 1952, just the opposite has happened, and nobody has talked about it. Scientists don't want to talk about it because it's so embarrassing. They made this triumphal claim in 1953 when this was published that, you know, we figured it out, how life came into being from non-life, so we don't need to put God in the equation anymore. We figured it out. Well, the more time has passed, the more they realize, oh, we haven't figured it out. Oh, we really haven't figured it out. Oh, we are totally, totally, totally clueless. Who wants to announce that from a podium? Nobody. So nobody talks about it. Nobody ever asks the question. They've gone silent. But there's a guy that I met. He's become a friend, Dr. James Tour, Rice University uh, in Houston. He is an expert on this stuff, and he is calling them out. He's saying we need to put a moratorium on all the funding for this stuff because we have finally figured out that we are barking up the wrong tree. This is not how it happened. It is preposterous. Now that we know how complex the simplest life is, and that's funny too, you know, like 70 years ago, they could say, well, a cell is not that complicated. Well, every year that passes, we realize more and more how complex the simplest life is. It's so complex that there is not a ghost of a chance that it just kind of got mushed together in the primordial soup. It didn't happen. We now know that it didn't happen, but the people have the guts to say that it didn't happen. Very few do. I'm one of them, and I put two chapters uh, on that subject in the book. I think it's going to get a lot of controversy because it's so it, it's just almost funny. I think people are going to read this and kind of freak out. It's going to be like that article, though, because what was what's beautiful when I read in, in the book about the Wall Street Journal article is that that people shared it. It's that they it's not enough that they want to believe in God, that they want others to believe in God. It's not enough that what they kind of knew to be true, but were afraid to say out loud, they want others to be able to say out loud. So I, if that, I think, I think you're right. Yeah. So I think it's going to go like wildfire. I want to get to, to archeology span next, but um, because my time in Iraq was striking to me when I spent time in Iraq, I said, if all you need to do is bring people to Iraq and have them go for a stroll and they'll be shocked at how just the architecture uh, um, of of the Nineveh Plains uh, proved so much, but what was before we go? What was was there anything in researching this book with science that startled you that struck you? Uh, there were a number of things that struck me. That's why I think when people read it, they're going to have to put it down and think about it because 
you, the fact that we haven't learned these things, I mean, what I just said about how did life evolve out of non-life? Most of us haven't even thought about that. Like we, we don't, we're not really, um, we're just not asked that question. So suddenly when somebody says, okay, hey, how did the first life, no, not evolution. How did the first life come from non-life? They couldn't evolve if you're talking about non-life, just some inert particles floating around. How did that happen? I, it's sort of shocking when you realize, how come I've never thought about this? How come I've never asked this question? It's kind of freaky. And there's a bunch of stuff. When I talk about water, nobody thinks that water is anything other than average, normal. It's the most normal thing you can imagine, right? Well, when you start looking into it, it is the freakiest thing. I, I couldn't believe it. I said to myself, this is, they should be teaching this in schools. This is chemistry. This is not theology. We're talking chemistry. Water is so bizarrely uh, constructed that what seems simple to us is it's just unlike any other liquid in the world. It's just crazy. I mean, the most basic thing is that everything, almost everything, when it, uh, when it freezes, gets heavier and sinks. Almost everything, but not water. Water has this very curious property that it gets lighter when it freezes. That's why ice floats. And because ice floats, you don't get a, get a runaway freezing effect that would like kill all the animals in the pond and the river or whatever just the opposite it protects the animals beneath it that's one aspect of water but you think that's just freaky why is that i mean it goes you know i've got two chapters i think on water and most people are going to say how come i never learned this in school this is crazy so there's I, there's just so many things i mean there's so, i i could make a list probably of like you know 150 things that popped out of me so i will I will not do and, that. And that's saying something, that there's 150 things you could point to to say were striking, that's startling. Oh, no. That's, e easy. That I they mean, pointed easy. to it's God. It's so crazy. It's so, it's so crazy that that's why I say I think this book is going to kind of shock people. And I think it's going to make people bolder about their faith because once you know this, you think, wow, why have I been like even apologetic for bringing up faith? This is just like slam dunk. It's true. This is like, you know. This is just reality. So why am I apologizing for it? So let's move to the the fascinating chapter. John Zmirak in his review said that it's three books in one. And, and I would argue with that. And maybe be, I think this might be made into a movie or a, a TV series because there's so much material there as a filmmaker. I, I would look at making this into like a 13-part series easily. Yeah. yeah. It, well, I actually, no kidding, I would love to do that because it does lend itself to that. You're quite right. You definitely. So let's get to the archaeology, which is just fascinating. That's not something I would have thought to put in the book, that the stones cry out. Well, I will tell you why I put archaeology in. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, and I was speaking at a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Skip Heitzig is the pastor. And Skip Heitzig said to me, hey, while you're in uh, New Mexico, while you're in Albuquerque, you should meet a friend of ours, Stephen Collins. He's an archaeologist, and he's got a little museum here, and he discovered biblical Sodom. And I said, what? What do you, what do you mean he discovered biblical Sodom? That's 1700." B.C., and nobody's ever discovered biblical Sodom. I've never read anything about it. What are you talking about? Well, he starts telling me about it. I meet the guy. The guy wrote a book in 2010 or 11, and he lays out, I mean, definitively. This is not like some theory, see what you think. I mean, there are those. This is not one of those. This is like slam dunk. Anybody who reads it is going to be like, yep. Yep. I, the only thing I can't prove is that God was the one who destroyed Sodom. But the way it happened, 
everything, the place, how it, it, it's, it's the only thing I can't prove is maybe that God did it. But then you think to yourself, well, yeah, but where do we get the story from, from the Bible? We wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for the Bible. Right. And this is something that this guy, Stephen Collins was reading Genesis while he was, he was in the Holy land and he was going to tell people where they think Sodom and Gomorrah are. But as he's reading the Bible itself the night before, he says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what the Bible, the Bible says it's, it's here, that Abraham could see it when he was in this area. He could see it 40 miles away. So there's no way it could be down here by the southern part of the Dead Sea. That's not even possible. The Bible says it's got to be up here. So he starts to look over the years. He finds a tell, which is a mound, you know, where a city's been built on top of a city, on top of a city, on top of a city over thousands and thousands of years. He finds one in Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, in what is Jordan, not Israel. And he begins to excavate it. And when he gets to the level 1700 BC, he discovers a, what he calls a destruction matrix, about four and a half foot average uh, depth of ash mixed with human bones and pottery and bricks. And no one had ever seen anything like it. In other words, when there's an earthquake, when there's a fire, you don't see stuff like this. It, It just looked like nobody could explain it. And then all of the buildings, which are monumental buildings, had been sheared off so that only the, the, the huge stumps were left. What could account for a destruction that would just like take buildings away like, a, like an atom bomb? Like it doesn't make any sense. And while they're looking through this layer of destruction 1700 BC, they find a piece of pottery from 1700 BC because he's an expert on this and he knows exactly what it is, what the period is. And on the flip side of it, there was like a, 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 a glassy kind of glaze. And he said, well, wait a minute, that wasn't invented until 700 AD. This can't be right. But it is right. He knows this is a glassy glaze, and yet it's from 1700 BC. So they take it to a lab in New Mexico, and they determine that the only thing that accounts for this is what they call an airburst event. In other words, a meteor or an asteroid comes into Earth's atmosphere and explodes and creates such heat, like 2,000 degrees, for you know a millisecond and that's the only thing that could account for this being partially melted with this glassy glaze so this is what scientists are saying this is not you know christians this is scientists when they looked at this they said that's what this is this was a meteor airburst event that you know like there was an event in siberia in 1908 they called the tunguska event where it it flattened 80 million trees like a level of power that's freaky it happens very very rarely but they say well that's obviously what happened here because look this is this thing was subjected to this kind of heat that's not possible any other way so it goes on and on and on the freakiest thing to me is that the level above 1700 bc you know you'd expect to find pottery from 1600 and 1500 and 1400 bc and on and on and on right there is zero civilization for 700 years in this spot. This is one of the premier spots of real estate in the Middle East. People have been settling there for literally thousands of years before Abraham was there. But for seven centuries, no one lived there. So the destruction was so intense that it probably destroyed the ability even to farm. But even more than that, it scared people so much that they they regarded the place as haunted and cursed. And nobody went there for seven centuries. That's unheard of. People don't do that. When you've got a great piece of real estate, people are there in a second. 
uh, to rework it, whatever. So I'm just giving you the details. No, but what's unbelievable is, is I'm hearing this. Why isn't this on Discovery Channel, a and &E, PBS, special after special? Yeah. That's, you, that's a exactly huge audience book, would, would fly. This is Everyone would be intrigued by this. this, this well, I, I hope it does become a series because this information – look, everybody needs to know this just because it's true. You don't have to like it. This is just the fact. Now, if you can come up with another explanation, good luck. But I'm telling you, the explanation that we have from scientists matches dramatically with the biblical record. Now, they didn't ask the scientists, hey, does this seem to you like this? They didn't tell them anything. They just said, here's a piece of pottery. It's obvious that something happened to the surface of it. It's not possible. The technology from 1700 BC couldn't do this. So what, what did this? And that's what they said. You know what the answer and, is? And, it just hit me. Yeah. They're as afraid – as afraid of science as we were, they are now. Does that make sense? <laughs> that's like, that, you... No, that's exactly correct. That science is now the enemy of atheism. And I never thought I'd look to see that, but that's why I'm so excited about the book, because I said, this is a headline. This is a headline. Science says, oh, no, it's not faith that's incompatible with science. It is atheism that is incompatible with science for many reasons. But one of them is that the facts of science are pointing so dramatically in the direction of God or the God of the Bible that you at least have to be amazed. Even if it doesn't convince you, you've at least got to be blown away. Yeah, and you'd want, you'd think you'd want to look, you'd want to know. It's so intriguing. But it, <laughs> I think it's just how we were kind of afraid to peek in at science. Uh, yeah. They're now afraid to, let's not even look at this. There, there's an explanation. No, not, we just, we don't need it. to know it. So let's just not even look. Let's let's not even look in that direction. Would you say that? The, the, obviously, that's what inspired you to do this section. It is because it is a kind of uncanny. I don't think I've ever seen in a book of apologetics, um, oh, an entire section on on archaeology. Well, you know, as I say, I I thought to myself, there are things that people really ought to know. When I heard about biblical Sodom, I just said, this is nuts. Like, some people know some stuff in biblical archaeology, but nobody knows this. And this is like the biggest slam dunk of all. This is not any speculation. This is dramatic. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should put it in the book. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. There's all this other archaeological stuff that people maybe don't know either. So I said, I should really do a whole section on it. And when I was doing the section, I discovered other things that I hadn't known before, that, that in 1968 they discovered the home of Peter in Capernaum. I mean, you, you think we're making this up. The home of Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus, the friend of the fisherman, his house in Capernaum, they discovered in 1968, and it was used as a worship place for the early Christians, and then they turned it into a church, and then they turned it into a bigger church and stuff. And I thought to myself, we've known about this since 1968, but I've never heard this. How come I've never heard this? Everybody I'm Catholic, know, and I didn't hear about we, it until I read your book. You'd think we'd be banging I mean, drums about that. that that's, that's what I'm saying. It goes on and on and on. The freakiest thing ever is when I, when I realized that while I was writing my book, they just, this sounds too good to be true. So you got to read the book, and you can see I'm not making this up. They found the first century home of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. That was the thing that I said, this can't be. This is too crazy. But it's the same thing as the home of Peter in Capernaum. It's the same home as the, the Church of the Annunciation, where Mary lived in Nazareth. 
these places were so revered by the early Christians that there's not a chance that they would not protect them and identify them or whatever. And when uh, Constantine's mother, uh, uh, Helena, Helen, went to the Holy Land, you know, 300 and something AD, she went back to most of these places and they built a church over it to protect it. And then they built a bigger church over it 400 years later. And then the Muslims destroyed the church and then nobody hears about it and whatever. You know, it's this crazy thing. And I thought, this is like detective work looking into this. But it was literally while I was writing this book that I came upon an article about this discovery by a group of uh, Catholic nuns in 1880. They moved from France to Nazareth to build a monastery. I mean, a, a nunnery, whatever, in, in Nazareth. And while they were excavating for their, to build the convent, they found the ruins of an old church. And they started, you know, doing a little digging. And eventually they found another church. So there were two huge churches. And at the bottom of it all, and it wasn't discovered until literally a few years ago, they discovered why were these churches in Nazareth, one on top of the other. Because at the bottom of them was a first century dwelling, a simple house. Why would people in the third in the fourth century and later on build extraordinary churches over a first century dwelling? What is this? Well, uh, you know, th this literally wasn't even written about until the book came out like a few months ago. It's a, the, uh, that alone is a story. But I just thought this is crazy stuff. People need to know about it. That they, they also discovered the um, what they call Gabbatha, where Jesus stood on the pavement in front of Pilate. They've discovered that. They used to think it was up by the Antonia Fortress. And no, they now are pretty sure that's wrong, that the pavement there was from a century later. And they discovered the. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, and this is just. Well, what I know, like about this reason. chapter, well, the whole book, but with this, this chapter, I mean, this section, I'm a, uh, we have a, we're home-based educators. We're not homeschoolers anymore. It's now it's home-based education, right? That's so mm. this book is like, it's, it's 12 years of, as a parent, I can look through this and it will set your children's hair on fire. It'll make them so yeah. excited about science. It'll make them excited about archeology span and history and, and so you and, and you're going to sell a lot of other people's books because they're going to read your book and they're going to look at your sources and they're going to say, I need to read this book next. And right. th this That's book, right. this book is going. That was my goal. I want to be I want to be the popularizer of this information. And then I want people to look deeper and understand, like, where I got this from, because, you know, the, the people who've done this work, they're experts and people need to know what we have discovered. I mean, as I said, it goes on and on. I don't want to give everything away, but it is. It's so crazy. I just said somebody needs to write a book and tell the world what we've already discovered. Yeah, it's a, no, it's amazing. And this, this, I could, we could do a whole show on this section, but I, I really want to get to what for me as an atheist was where the rubber uh, hit, met the road, where the rubber meets the road, right. which is yeah, truth, yeah. is truth and the nature of evil and the problem of pain. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, is atheism. Is atheism evil? What is truth? This is the third and final section. Was there, um, when you structured the book, was there, uh, when you laid it out, what was the thinking of part one, part two, part three? Well, it, it was nothing complicated. It was just that when I first 
um, realized about what I was talking about, uh, James Tour discovered that there's no way seven decades after this experiment where they put the electricity through the, you know, the, the prebiotic soup, nobody ever talks about that. I thought I got to write about that. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I wanted to write about the fine-tuned universe. I wrote about that in my Miracles book, so I can write about that. And then I thought, oh, and I can write about the Big Bang because we haven't talked about that in a while, and the implications of that are insane. So I said, okay, there's going to be some science. But then I heard about this discovery of the, the, the biblical Sodom, and I thought, wait, wait a minute. There's also evidence from, from, from archaeology. It's, it's overwhelming that the Bible's not a collection of folk tales, that it keeps uncovering stuff more and more almost every day, every week. I said, I got I to gotta do that. And then I thought, but you know what? If the title is going to be Is Atheism Dead, I really need to talk about atheism. I really need to talk about the, uh, the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, who became so popular. They wrote all these books. I said, I need to look into that and deal with that. And honestly, when I looked at that stuff, I was as amazed as I am by this other stuff. I could not get over. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get over how shallow their reasoning is. I said, I, I gave these people a lot of credit. I thought these people are geniuses. They're so smart. And then you realize, yeah, they might be smart on other stuff. But when it comes to philosophizing, theologizing, whatever, they're so angry that they're not even being rational. They are just being irrational, nasty, angry, and they don't have a, a, a leg to stand on. And I said, somebody needs to expose that or at least address it. And so the more I looked into that, the more I just thought there's more and more information on the subject. I mean, the one thing I thought, if you want to talk about evidence of God, all you need to do is look at atheism and who's an atheist and what happens to them. And the most dramatic thing, and this concerns you because you brought up uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, I discovered during the writing of this book something as amazing as the discovery of some of the other stuff that I've mentioned. I discovered that two of the most famous atheists who ever lived, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, the French existentialists in the mid-20th century, they were, you know, the cat's meow, everybody's going on and on about the, facing the bleakness of the universe without God, and these brave people are trying to figure out an ethical system without God, and blah, 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 blah. Those two guys, nobody knows this, at the end of their lives, they both independently came to faith. And I said, wait a minute, this is a headline. This is a headline in the New York Times. You know, like Albert Camus, uh, nobody knows this. How, and by the way, you said, well, how did you find it, Eric? I'll tell you how I found it. I was reading another book on apologetics that just mentioned this. And I said, what? So I looked into it. I found the book that was referred to in the book I was reading. I bought the book. I read the book. And I said, this is it. This is a slam Dunk. Albert Camus was dissatisfied with atheism. Jean-Paul Sartre was dissatisfied with it. And both of them independently of each other, one of them, you know, in 1960, whatever, 61 or whatever it was, the other one in uh, 1976, years apart, totally unknown to each other, totally unknown to the world, came so, to faith. It's I, just insane that nobody wrote about it. The guy who wrote I about didn't... Albert Camus didn't write about it until like the year 2001. So this is 40 years after it happened. He decides, oh, maybe it's time to write about this. Nobody knows about it. His family didn't know. The only guy who knew about it was this guy, and he wrote his book at age 92 telling the story. It's pretty big news. It's like his biggest news. You know, and I, Sartre, I, Camus is someone I really admired. He, 
and Sartre and Kemu were friends to a point, right? They they had a break in a relation in their relationship yeah. over the Soviet Union and totalitarian socialism. Right. Right. So right. they never there they, there was never a knowledge between the two of them that they had assented to faith either. Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is there couldn't have been because Camus came to faith pretty privately. The only person who knew the story was this priest, the Presbyterian minister, who was uh, visiting Paris. He was kind of the minister of this, the American church uh, for the summer. Uh, and then he went back a few summers later. So he had this relationship with Sartre, but Sartre was very private about it. And the guy never wrote about it. So finally he writes about it in 2001 or whatever he writes about it. And he's writing about something happened 40 years ago. He never wrote about it in 40 years. The whole world didn't know that at the end of his life, Albert Camus was so enraptured with the Bible. He read it backwards and forwards like five times. This is unbelievable. You know, if you follow the Western philosophical tradition to its end, you're going to end on a cliff into looking at an abyss with Nietzsche, Sartre, and Camus to each side of you. And there's evidence now that all three of them ended their life assenting to the truth of Christianity. It's unbelievable to me. Well, not, not Nietzsche, I assume. Well, the but, reason uh, I just say Nietzsche is didn't he sign his last work, the crucified? I, I just think that, that was nuts. his insanity, but that's, okay. but that's another issue. That's another but issue. But... In the cases of, in the case of Camus and Sartre, there is no doubt wow. what I'm saying. In other words, that, that, that Sartre, uh, okay. So Camus is killed in a car crash at age 47. He begged this guy to baptize him. Whoa. And the guy says, oh, I don't know if you're ready. You were already baptized as a kid. But he was like asking him, no, please, I want to be baptized. And he says, well, are you going to make a public statement of faith? And he said, no, well, I'm not ready for that. I don't want people to make a big deal. I'm a... And the guy it, it was killed by a car crash like months later. So then you go fast forward 20 years to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's an old man. Uh, he was living with somebody at that point who had come to faith and they had conversations. And the point is when he wrote about this, uh, his, his friends, his colleagues, they were furious at him. They wrote vicious things. They said, he's betrayed us. He's betrayed. They were so angry. But then it gets even worse. There's a credible report, not only that he came to believe in God, but that on his deathbed, he was received into the Catholic Church. And that's a, a very credible report. And, you know, I, I put the footnotes. That's everything. the Jesuit but priest thought, from England, uh, James Wanger. I'm trying to remember it. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So you're talking about the two leading lights of atheism in the 20th century. Now, another reason that I think this is important is because unlike Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, who are what I would call intellectually very sloppy atheists, Camus and Sartre were the opposite. They were the two who looked more deeply into the abyss of meaninglessness than anybody. They didn't, they didn't click their heels and say, hey, there's no God, I can sleep around. They were basically really troubled. <laughs> by the way, that was the source of my atheism. atheism. That was about as deep as it went. But that's what I'm saying. That's as deep as it is for a lot of people. So if you want to go more deeply, you start realizing, oh, guess what? This is ugly. If there's no God, there's no meaning. Now, here you have Sartre and Camus trying to figure out a how can we determine what meaning is, what is good, what is evil? How can we do that without God? They were really trying, and they knew that it was not possible. So if you think about it, the two people who looked the hardest at this came out on the other side, and nobody knows. And I said, I need to write about this in my book. People need to tell their friends. People need to tell your atheist friends, tell your agnostic friends, tell your Christian friends. This is historical fact. You don't need to like it, but this happened. The two people who looked the most 
dedicatedly, the most rigorously at atheism, they both came to faith. That is a headline. Nobody knows it. By the grace of God, uh, I put the it. Patron the patron saints of you know, the professors that are going to bully your children came to faith. So when <laughs> you send your children off to a state university, they will be bullied for their faith. And well, how, yeah. every young person that I know that goes off to college is going to get a copy of this book. Isn't that funny? I mean, you're exactly right. Then what's going to happen when people say, oh, no, Camus became a Christian? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, Albert Camus became a Christian and Sartre became a Christian. And by the way, the third guy is Anthony Flew. He was the guy that wrote the most popular atheist textbook that was used for decades. He, did, he didn't become a Christian, but he believed in a creator God. He said atheism is no longer intellectually tenable. Uh, he looked actually at the science, the front part of my book. That was the kind of argument that sold him that there is not any chance that the world evolved, uh, I mean, came out of uh, nothing into being by chance. There's no chance that it was chance. So, you know, there you go. And that book, when it came out, you would think, imagine if Billy Graham came out as an atheist, right? <laughs> wrote a book about it. Exactly. It, yeah. It'd be, the, it'd be on, you know, the biggest story in the world. But when this this atheist, this uh, most the most prominent atheist in the world ascends to the Christian faith, you know, you, you're not hearing about it, which is just, it's no. striking. But what it shows is the fragility of disbelief, the fragility of the atheists, that they can't weather these sorts of um, high-profile conversions. They just they can't weather it. And it doesn't even intrigue them. You know, when Well, it, let's, let's, let's be honest. It's too upsetting. They have to look away. Because if it's true, and it is, uh, it would mean that, that they would – you know, to, to to acknowledge it, to look at it, it would be very troubling to their consciences. Now, let's be honest. Some of them will have the guts to allow their consciences to be troubled. They will allow themselves to follow the logic. Some will, and some won't, and that's always the way it's been. You know, when I saw Sartre uh, died a Christian, that, 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 that meant a lot to me because it was reading Sartre that ma- – saved me from my Randianism, which was this idea that you could believe in objective moral truth without God. And it was the perfect right. objective moral truth because it allowed me to do pretty much anything I wanted, whenever I wanted, with whoever I wanted. And, and I liked that. And it was Sartre that made me wrestle with this idea. With he, 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 It was an existentialism and education where I just I came to un- the realization that if I am to continue on as an atheist, I must deny any hope for human dignity, I must deny transcendent moral values, that, that the cost of being able to sleep around is, I have to say the Holocaust wasn't evil. That was just, I, and I wrestled, that's exactly, that was what I had to. That's exactly to. right. That's exactly right. I, you know, it's kind of funny, the way I put it, I said, if there's no God and all there is is the material universe, if there's only matter, which is what these materialist atheists say, right? My quote is, if there is only matter, then nothing matters. And that's a fact. If there's only matter in the universe, there's no transcendent God, nothing matters. There's no evil. There's no good. Whatever you do is meaningless. Who can face that? Nobody can face that. And the two people who tried the hardest, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, both of them realized it's not possible. And they were honest enough to admit it. Now, 
it was it was Sartre that said hell is other people. And I remember reading that, and it's in your book. I remember as an atheist thinking heaven is other people. Hell is being alone. And I, I think for both Sartre and Camus, right, se- Christian sexual ethics addled them, annoyed them. Um, but for Sartre to say hell is other people, well, sex requires another person, right, doesn't it? Um, well, look, these people weren't involved. They weren't, they weren't looking for uh, the love and union with another human being, they were looking for, you know, physical ecstasy, uh, which is a solipsistic, onanistic uh, project, which is completely different from uh, the way uh, God presents it to us. So it's kind of, you know, all, all of this stuff actually ends up being more fascinating the more you look into it, isn't it? Yeah, a priest friend of mine says that it's not sex, it's that they masturbate with another person. Well, that's exactly correct. That's, that's exactly what it is. It's, uh, you know, and we need to, we need to talk about this stuff because we're living at a time in a culture where people need to, you know, we, we see where, where things have taken us and uh, we, how do we find our way back? Well, God is the answer. That's it. We as a culture are where Camus and Sartre were. Where they were, we all are now together. I think of the young person that was addicted to pornography by the time they were 12. They, they saw the most vile pornography before they ever held a girl's hand at the skating rink, right? They, um, they've never had a boyfriend or girlfriend, but they've had sex with 15 people and they met all of those people through an app. And so they are, they have been brought to the point. I think that they is very, when they're very young, they're already at this point of despair that Sartre and Camus were at the end of their life. Like every child we see, every young person we see uh, riding their bike, you know, down the street has a phone in their pocket that has streamed the worst pornography. Right. And, all the college students we see at the Starbucks, they've got Tinder on their phone. And, and so these young people uh, are where Sartre and Camus were. And I think this is a great time for us as Christians to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no question about it. And that, honestly, that's why I'm so grateful that you would have me on, because this is an important conversation. This is not just some book. This is like headline stuff. Everybody needs to know this is true. You don't need to like it, but you need to deal with the fact. These are the facts, and, you know, they've been out there, but nobody's really pulled them together uh, the way that I did. So I hope that it leads to a lot of other books, and uh, we'll see. But I'm just – I'm really grateful. Thank you, Jason. Well, I know you got a busy schedule. I thank you for coming on my show. I, I'm going to ask everyone to pre-order this. I You don't need our help. I think it's going to be one of the best-selling books of the year, if not the number one best-selling no, nonfiction I, book of the year. Well, you're no, you have a very important audience, and I will tell you, uh, the cheapest way to get it, if you go to my website, ericmetaxas.com, there's a number of options. A couple of them are super cheap. You probably will never find them. That's why I put them on my website, ericmetaxas.com. Uh, please, folks, check it out. Well, and is there a specific place you want us to buy it to push it up on the on the charts or just go to Eric Metaxas and choose whatever we want? Yeah, if, as long as you go to my website, uh, anything you choose. But there's some there that it's so cheap. I think it's fourteen ninety seven. The book's a twenty eight dollar, four hundred and twenty page hardcover. Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's pictures. that's half. I'm not. I I told you I got through college without a math class, but that's like half off. Well, is that, that right? That's what I'm saying. Like it's so cheap that people need to go there because you'll you'll buy more than one copy much more easily when it's fourteen ninety seven. That's right? what we, that's what we need to do. We need to buy copies for every young person in our life, every atheist in our life, and um, that's I'm going to go on your website as soon as I get off the show, and I'm going to use the code Metaxas. <laughs> 
Eric. The code is the Eric. Code. All right, so guys, book. if For when you book, choose, no code. what is what is the deep discount this month? I have to look at the email they sent me. Is it still Giza Dream Sheets? I don't know. <laughs> I, I I can't I can't keep up anymore. Actually, all my other books are at Mike Lindell's website, mystore.com. Okay. If you go to mystore.com and you use the code Eric, all my other books are there. Not the new one. The Fish new out one of water. Everyone needs to own Fish Out of Water, but. But first, you have to read this book because we need to push it to the top of the chart so everyone reads it. This is how it works. Well, that, that's, it's, it's actually true. If you care about evangelism, you care about getting this stuff out, you've you got to pre-order it or order it as, as soon as you can because that's what, that's what changes things for a book. That's what makes people who wouldn't normally want to write about it, it'll make them write about it. So I, I do ask everybody as a favor, if you think you're going to buy it, please buy it right now or pre-order it right now. Eric, we're we're gonna move on it, and we're gonna I'm gonna promote it every show from like here until Christmas. We're gonna talk about this book I, I, listen, because I want I, everyone to I read it. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I appreciate it. I really think it's important. We got to get the truth out. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing. Let's talk about it. Yeah, you write faster than I read, so you got to pump the brakes yeah. a little. Like how many more? How many more books are coming out this year? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm 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 done for a while, but thank you. Well, Eric, you know I, I I greatly appreciate you because whenever I've had any issue that's pressing to advance some vulnerable community, I ask you if we can um, come on the air, and you've always been there for us. And this show is an audience of people around the world. Half our audience is outside the United States that is committed to advancing the dignity of the vulnerable, which to me is what the gospel is. The gospel is standing with the other that is vulnerable. You know the, the, the work of art, the pieta. And to me, that s- sums up what the life of a Christian should be. And you have lived that life. You've always taken great risks um, to stand with the vulnerable. You've always taken great risks um, to proclaim the truth. And so to me, you're someone, you are someone that my audience and, and so many of us greatly admire. So it's just a privilege to have you on my show. I'm honored to hear that, my friend. Thank you very much. All right, brother. Now I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to sell pillows. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you. Bye-bye. All right, brother. God bless. All right, everybody. First of all, you're going to go to Eric's website. It is in the show notes. You have to buy a copy of this book. You've got to pre-order. It's pre-ordering it. We're going to do another show when the book comes out. But you need to pre-order it now. By the way, I am a bibliomaniac, so I'm always pre-ordering books. And then I forget that I ordered the book. And then the book shows up the day it came out, or sometimes it shows up before it comes out. They do that, you know. It'll come out two or three days before they say it's going to hit the shelves. It is in your house. And I'm like, oh, I forgot I ordered that book. And it's like a Christmas present to myself. So, And there's no better present than a book. And this, I'm telling you, is going to be the most talked about book of the year. And I suspect there will be a, a, a TV series or something that comes out of this, I would love to see it um, because we need to get this this these startling and beautiful discoveries out to the world. So go in the show notes, buy some books. Also, as always, this episode is being brought to you by MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones, or if you want, use the code Eric, but that would be silly. His show is huge, mine is little, but you get to choose. You can use the code Eric. You know what, today, use the code Eric. But in, unless you're going to buy... The mattress topper, <laughs> that's big. Use the code Jones. I'd like credit for the mattress topper. And as always, this episode is being brought to you by um, Movie to Movement. Our latest movie, Divided Hearts of America, will be on Fox Nation this fall. And the Vulnerable People Project. 
Become a monthly donor. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Stand with us. And I will tell you, this week, 23 folks were evacuated from Afghanistan thanks to our supporters through the work of our organization. And seven, seven more should be out by tomorrow. Uh, so I want to thank all of you who are supporters of the Vulnerable People Project. Until next time, it's the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media.